It's a news story that gets more awful the more you learn. The attack of Hamas terrorists on the nation of Israel. Now more than a week old, this drama is still unfolding. We'll tell you everything you need to know. Plus, we'll actually take you to Israel for an on-the-ground report. All that and more on today's edition of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Our host is Middle East expert Dr. Charlie Dyer. And Charlie, you know, people look at this news story and many other things that have been happening, and they wonder what the future holds for Israel. And many things are uncertain, of course, but the Bible gives us an outline of what will happen in the last days when we get there. That's exactly right, John. That's why our friends at Life and Messiah recently hosted a prophecy conference focused specifically on this topic, Israel and the Church Living in the Last Days. They're now making the videos of the conference available for early access exclusively to the Land and the Book listeners. You'll hear from many knowledgeable speakers on this topic, including Moody Radio host Michael Radelnik and me. Uh, These encouraging and informative videos will help you better understand God's future plans and how we can be actively waiting. To get access to this video series, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to sign up. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Well, you know the story. The relative calm in Israel shattered last Saturday when Hamas launched a major assault on the country from the Gaza Strip. How could such a surprise attack happen is what many of us are wondering, Charlie. And what is the situation now? Well, there are multiple reasons the attack was successful. And the first is the fact that Iran provided key logistical support. Uh, The detailed intelligence, the precision of the attack point to outside planning. It was a complex military invasion And in spite of their denials, Iran had to have been involved. Uh, The attack was also successful because of the political turmoil within Israel over the past nine months. During the time, many Israelis refused to sign up for reserve duty, and that degraded Israel's level of preparedness, and their enemies knew it. And finally, the attack also showed the limits of over-reliance on high-tech defenses. Electronic surveillance can be thwarted through low-tech means, like not using cell phones to communicate. Even something as sophisticated as the Iron Dome defense system can be overwhelmed by firing a massive number of rockets at the same time. Hamas's goal was to shock Israel, and it succeeded. The death toll in Israel is now over 1,000, heading toward 1,200, 1,300. The number just keeps moving, and the number of wounded is nearing 3,000. That's the highest number of casualties within Israel's borders uh, in a single attack since the state began. In fact, the comparison that they're making now has to go back to the Holocaust for this level of horrific violence. It includes over 100 soldiers and police officers killed during the initial attack and subsequent fighting inside Israel. The number of Hamas terrorists who took part in the attack is stunning. Over 1,500 bodies were found inside Israel. And that doesn't count the ones who escaped back into Gaza with hostages. Hamas wanted to capture as many hostages as possible, soldiers and civilians, to use as bargaining chips, and they were successful there as well. Israel was caught flat-footed. For two days, chaos reigned as Israeli defense forces tried to get a handle on the extent of the incursion and hunt down the terrorists. Israel has declared war on Gaza, and it looks like it's going to be a prolonged, bloody conflict. Well, as Israel's Knesset prepares to return for its winter session this coming week, what are the key issues facing the legislators, particularly in light of this conflict? Yeah, the war in Hamas has vaulted to the top of the agenda. It supplants the debate over changes to the judiciary and the proposed changes to the draft law impacting the ultra-Orthodox. Israel's a fractured nation, but in times of war, the people do seem to come together. Now, hopefully, 
This unity is going to send a signal to Hamas and all Israel's other enemies that the government is united against terrorism. Once the conflict is over, a commission will be appointed to determine exactly how Israel found itself so unprepared. That'll be painful, but it'll be a necessary step to glean the lessons needed to avoid something similar in the future. It's also likely that Israel will be far less willing to make any concessions to the Palestinians following this conflict. So right now, the war and its aftermath will take center stage in the Knesset. Everything else will just get pushed into the background. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Dr. Charlie Dyer, our host, Middle East Authority, helping us understand what's going on right now. I'm John Geiger. Well, Charlie, prior to Hamas's attack, the possibility of peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia seemed to be moving forward, though not without some concerns. Who were the ones raising concerns, and what were their specific objections, and what impact will the fighting have on the proposed agreement? Uh, One of the main reasons Hamas launched its attack was to derail this peace accord because it signaled a major shift in Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries. The Saudis believed Iran is their greatest threat, and they were willing to move beyond Palestinian intransigence and make peace with Israel and the U.S. for their own protection. Hamas's attack placed the Israeli-Palestinian conflict back in the spotlight. Depending on the outcome, it could become harder for the Saudis to move forward if they appear to be siding with Israel against the Palestinians. But the current conflict isn't the only issue. The attack highlighted Israel's vulnerability. One reason for making peace with Israel was the thought that they could offer protection against Iran. Well, that's now been called into question, and what happens over the next few weeks could determine whether or not these countries will want to anger Iran by aligning with Israel. In terms of other objections to the treaty, well, within our own country, 20 Democratic senators sent a letter to President Biden expressing concerns over U.S. security guarantees to Saudi Arabia and U.S. commitment to advance the Saudis' nuclear ambitions. Israel had its own mixed feelings about Saudi nuclear ambitions. Now, to help sweeten the deal for President Biden in Congress, the Saudis apparently offered to pump more oil in 2024 to lower gas prices. This could help the president and Congress as they move into an election year. But the current war with Hamas has put all those plans on hold, at least for the time being. Well, even before the current conflict, there appeared to be declining support for Israel within the United States. What's going on in this realm and what can be done about it? Yeah, if there's been any doubt about this, the pro-Hamas rallies in New York, the vote by the students at Harvard and other events elsewhere this week uh, serve as a reality check. Uh, Support for Israel has been on the decline, and it's the result of several factors. One is a drop in the impact of Christianity on our own culture and country. America has grown increasingly secular, and as a result, less people really care what the Bible has to say about anything, including Israel and God's program for that country. Even among those claiming to be evangelicals, there's a movement away from supporting Israel on the part of younger Christians. They're being influenced more by social media than they are by the Bible. And there's a great deal of false information and anti-Semitism being spread online. The impact of all this can be seen in a recent AP survey, which showed that only about 3 in 10 Americans see Israel as an ally that shares our interests. And only 4 in 10 even see Israel as a partner with whom we should cooperate. Those are scary numbers. So what can be done? Well, first, individual believers and churches need to be willing to stand up and voice our support for Israel. 
Second, and John, this is going to sound crazy with a war going on, but second, I think we need to encourage Christians to visit Israel. Not right now, of course, but once the war's over, which won't be too long, seeing the situation there for oneself, up close and personal, gives a perspective that helps a person spot the false narrative in many stories against Israel. And finally, I think we need to encourage Christians to read the Bible. There's a lot of propaganda and false information on the internet and on social media. Uh, The Bible contains God's truth. The more you get to know the Bible, the wiser you'll become, and it will impact how you view Israel. Charlie, these pro-Hamas demonstrations, though, really in the face of beheadings, babies executed in front of their parents, how do they escape the reality of those things and still say, rah, rah, go Hamas? It all depends on how you start your approach. If, if you're listening only to social media, uh, they're trying to compare this to uh, the uh, Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. It's absolutely a false comparison. Uh, in Warsaw, Israel didn't break out of the ghetto to kill and behead children in Poland. Uh, but uh, they don't know enough about history. And as they get this partial narrative from the Internet, it really does give them a distorted view and make these absurd comparisons. All right, let's say as an individual, I want to do something to help Israel right now. I'm thousands of miles away. What can I do, Charlie? Well, the first most important thing you can do is pray. Pray for the people of Israel. Pray for their leaders. Pray for our country's leadership that will continue to stand strong for Israel. Pray for the Jewish and Arab believers in Israel that they'll be bold to share their faith. The ultimate solution to Israel and the Middle East is the Prince of Peace. And uh, there are people on the ground there we need to be praying for. Uh, Second, if you have the financial means, consider donating to organizations in Israel now serving on the front lines. Uh, Groups like Magen David Adom, that's Israel's equivalent of the Red Cross. Or consider donating to some of the major hospitals there that have been working overtime to treat the thousands of wounded. And we have a list of those on our Facebook page. And finally, email or write to the White House and your representatives in the Senator House and express your support for Israel. Uh, That's very important right now. Well, a lot to talk about, and we're going to dig into it further in a conversation, Charlie, that you and I are going to have called Everything You Need to Know About the Hamas Attack in Israel. We'll follow that up with a report from somebody who is in Israel, Dr. Erez Soraf. So a whole lot more to come in our coverage as it continues here on The Land and the Book. We'll be back with more. It's the most aggressive attack on Israel in decades, and nobody saw it coming. How could Hamas have pulled this all off? And just how serious is Israel when they say they are now at war? Coming up, everything you need to know about the Hamas attack on Israel. Hey, welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and before we sit down and talk this all through with Dr. Charlie Dyer, let's pause for a refreshing idea on sharing the love of Jesus with a Jewish friend. So you've gotten to know your Jewish friend and you're talking serious life issues and and suddenly the question pops into your brain, if Jewish people don't believe in Jesus, what do they believe saves them from sin? I'm going to ask Wes Tabor with Life in Messiah. It's helpful to know there are four big hurdles that we face. First, many Jewish people redefine sin only to include major crimes like murder or robbing a bank. Second, rabbinic Judaism does not emphasize the need for a savior. And when the temple was destroyed, rabbis determined that prayer, repentance, and good deeds are what earn right standing with God. 
Messiah will be a righteous king who restores David's throne and not a redeemer for sin. This is what the rabbis teach. But in the end, what the rabbis or others believe about salvation matters little when we stand before the Holy One on Judgment Day. Only God's perspective on atonement ultimately matters. So what scripture could we use to share God's view? Leviticus 17.11, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Genesis 15.6, Abraham is justified by faith. And Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. Boy, that's powerful theology in a small burst. Thank you, Wes. Wes Tabor with Life in Messiah joining us today on The Land and the Book. When the news broke last weekend, the world was in shock. And we've been overwhelmed since then trying to make sense of all that has happened in Israel. We're going to do our best in this segment to cover everything you need to know about the Hamas attack in Israel. Charlie, what made Hamas pull the trigger now? I mean, apart from the obvious historic reference on the calendar, why now? Well, Hamas said it was in response to the Jewish presence on the Temple Mount during the Jewish Holy Days, but that's really just an excuse, a fig leaf, if you will, to try and justify it. This operation took weeks, if not months, of planning. So I see really two reasons. First, this nine-month partisan divide in Israel, the country's been torn over judicial reform. You know, thousands have refused to participate in military reserve duty as part of that protest. That included fighter pilots and others who served in security. I think uh, Hezbollah, Hamas, Iran all looked at that and said, Israel's weak right now. This is a good time to do something. And the second factor are those peace negotiations we've talked about with Saudi Arabia Uh, The Palestinians felt like they were being sidelined. The rest of the Arab world was leaving them behind and uh, looking to make peace with Israel. And Hamas used this to uh, force the rest of the world to let them back on the world stage, if you will. And I think they did it in a way that's really going to cause some problems for a future deal between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Well, everyone is asking how this could have happened. What about Israel's high-tech sensors and spies and weapons? What about the vaunted Mossad? Why did none of these identify at least elements of this attack ahead of time? Uh, It shows us uh, how we put too much faith, I think, in high-tech sensors and other things. Uh, You can listen in on mobile phone calls, for example, but that only works if they're using their mobile phones to make preparations. Uh, In this case, it looks like Iran and Hamas had face-to-face meetings Uh, The same thing was true of the Hamas leadership in Gaza. If you don't know they're planning something, you don't know what you don't know. And uh, I I think in this case, Israel had no idea. Now, it's interesting. They had some uh, vague ideas there were things going on. Certainly two years ago, they destroyed attack tunnels, which were designed to accomplish just what happened. That is, flood the southern part of Israel with uh, hundreds of Hamas fighters. Israel stopped the tunnels. But Hamas just figured out another way to flood that area with their fighters. So hindsight, I think, will show that there was something planned. Uh, There's always been something planned, but it was vague enough that they didn't take it seriously or didn't have anything that was actionable. Everything you need to know about the Hamas attack on Israel. That's our conversation today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Middle East expert, Dr. Charlie Dyer. We're kind of expanding on our coverage that we offered in the news segment earlier. Charlie, what does this attack say about the stealth, strategy, and execution of Hamas and its partners, a list that apparently includes Iran? Yeah, well, it shows that the uh, whole process was carried out brilliantly, unfortunately. In fact, it was so well executed. That's one of the reasons that uh, it looks like Iran's fingerprints are all over it, even though they've now officially denied any involvement. But uh, just a day earlier, some of the Hamas leaders and some from Hezbollah uh, made statements saying that, indeed, Iran was involved in it. It's too well planned to have been just a local operation. Just two examples. 
The attack started with over 2,000 rockets being fired into Israel, but at the same time, they launched small drones to drop bomblets on watchtowers where Israel looks over part of Gaza, effectively blinding Israel's surveillance. And at the same time, they sent squads to multiple locations at the fence using explosive charges and bulldozers. They tore holes in the fence, and then they had hundreds of terrorists, and they estimate now three to 400 or more, went through the holes on motorcycles and pickup trucks to at least 20 predetermined towns and villages to attack. But while all that's happening, while the rockets are going on, they also launched terrorists toward Israel using motorized gliders and via the Mediterranean Sea. And the gliders headed to an all-night concert that was being attended by hundreds of Israeli youth and young adults. And that's where hundreds of the casualties came from. So it's all not just a coincidence. That took careful planning and timing. And that says Hamas had outside assistance. And of course, the one group that could do that is Iran. It feels like so far that there have been very few specifics released to us by either side about uh, deaths and injuries. And I'm sure they're tallying all that. But why the slow trickle of data? Uh, the fog of war really took over in this situation. Israel has said it's going to take us a while just to even figure. They're, they're going through towns now. They have to go block by block, house by house, room by room to see if there are any additional terrorists or if there are additional dead bodies or additional hostages that need to be rescued. So this is an ongoing process that uh, just took time. Now, Israel isn't saying much as well because they don't want to signal their plans to Hamas. You know, we know 300,000 reservists have been called up. It's the largest call-up in Israel's history. And while most are heading to Gaza, they're also sending them into the West Bank and up on the border with Lebanon. Uh, But back to Gaza, Israel's going to launch a ground operation. Hamas has already assumed that to be the case. They're preparing their own defenses, and Israel doesn't want to expose its strategies or its objectives or its operational plans. So they're holding things close to their vest. Uh, The other thing going on is that the news media are scrambling as well. Uh, They're looking for scraps of information. Uh, They are trying to keep up with all that's happening. And in those kind of cases, yeah, all of us who are anxious to find the up to the second news are finding that uh, the news isn't there up to the second right now. Charlie, what are the military options open for Israel by way of response? You mentioned a ground attack, but what exactly could they do that would be very effective in crippling the machinery of Hamas? Well, I see at least three options. Two are immediate, one's more long range. The first option, I think they're going to keep this air campaign going as long as they can. They want to degrade Hamas. They want to also cause uh, as much problem stopping the rockets without doing collateral damage to civilians. Uh, The second option, though, is that ground incursion. Israel, in 2014, is the last time they actually invaded Gaza, took the lives of over 2,000 in Gaza, 70 Israelis, And uh, this time you're going to see uh, casualty numbers on both sides rise when that happens. But uh, that's what it's going to take to accomplish Israel's goal. They want to capture or kill all Hamas's military and political leadership. They want to destroy the weapons and they want to get rid of the infrastructure to keep this from happening again every couple of years. Uh, Now, the third option, and I think this is in addition to those other two, I think you're going to see Israel going after the individuals who captured Israelis and took them as, as hostages to Gaza. All those pictures that Hamas posted online showing their, their soldiers with the Israelis, Israel is already gathering those pictures and building a profile of who it was who did that. They may have gotten back into Gaza with their hostages, but they didn't get away. Israel's going to find them and go after them. 
It seems to me Israel must respond with overwhelming force. They must win and win decisively. But how can they achieve that without earning the condemnation of the rest of the world? You know, in all honesty, they probably can't. But I think Israel's reached their own 9-11 moment, or, or someone might even say their own Pearl Harbor event. You know, they, they don't care now what the rest of the world thinks. Uh, this madness has gone on long enough. They've put up with Hamas long enough, and they need to push forward seeking total victory. The one thing that they do need to do is maintain the highest levels of integrity to keep it a just war. You know, mistakes do happen. Even early on, they've done things like phoning people in buildings before bombing them and telling them to leave an area so as not to be caught in the fighting. Now, they're still going to be condemned by some, but not lowering themselves to the level of the enemy, to Hamas, will enable them to effectively argue that they engaged in a just war against a very unjust adversary. You're listening to a special edition of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, looking at everything you need to know about the Hamas attack on Israel. What are the Hamas leaders thinking here? I mean, that Israel won't do that much? Can't they see that their aggression will cost hundreds, if not thousands, of lives from their own people? Don't they see how this conflict might well destroy a, a massive chunk of their own infrastructure? You know, the bottom line, John, is they don't care. They're responsible for most of the misery experienced by the average person in Gaza since they took over in 2006. In the past, every war has ended with money pouring into Gaza to help rebuild, and a good part of that money was siphoned off by Hamas to take care of their fighters and to resupply their equipment. I would like to think this time it's going to be different, but I'm something of a skeptic. Certainly, Iran will keep pumping money, weapons, and expertise into Gaza if Hamas remains in power. And uh, I think they are thinking, yeah, we'll be battered, but we won't be broken. And that's why I think in Israel's case, Israel's looking at this saying, we've got to get rid of Hamas or the problem's just going to keep going on. What's your feeling about the way the American media is covering this story? Factual, balanced, or are you seeing some spin? Yeah, initially, I think it's been fairly straightforward, especially pointing out some of the atrocities that were committed by Hamas but American media still see the conflict in terms of David versus Goliath, and usually Hamas and the Palestinians are David, and Israel's cast as the Goliath. And as the war goes on, my fear is that they're going to revert back to that type. I'm also concerned by the space that's being given to the rallies backing Hamas and the Palestinians and condemning Israeli aggression. And I think we're going to see that continue and actually increase. Now, at some point, the press needs to say, enough is enough. Hitler was evil. And so is Hamas. And that needs to be said, and the evil needs to be vanquished. What impact, if any, might this conflict have on the Saudi Arabian agreement with Israel that is under consideration? Well, I mentioned earlier in our current events segment, I think the agreement is at a minimum, at least on temporary hold. Uh, the Saudis will not want to be seen supporting Israel with an agreement if it's against the Palestinians uh, while they're fighting. So they're going to be reluctant to push forward until this conflict is over and in the rearview mirror. But they still internally want an agreement, and so does the U.S. It might be that another push for this agreement will take place maybe after the first of the year, sometime while there's just a little bit of space between this conflict and, and the agreement. But uh, this might be a place where Hamas, at least temporarily, will claim to come out of this fight with a victory. What about the rest of the world? It feels like there is widespread condemnation of Hamas. Any noticeable silence, though, that you've detected? Again, so far it's been generally condemning of Hamas and supportive of Israel. Now, we'll see if that continues. A couple exceptions. Uh, Turkey 
hasn't been as vocal as I, I would wish they could be. You know, President Erdogan has urged restraint in the conflict rather than condemning Hamas. And of course, Iran is on the other side. They're congratulating Hamas on their great victory. That's no surprise at all. The U.S. and Europe have done a good job of speaking to friends and allies in support of Israel uh, and of showing that support visibly. Now, sadly, there have been pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas rallies in the United States and in Australia and in Europe, along with reports of vandalism against Jewish restaurants and businesses. And I sadly expect that to uh, increase as this war goes on. What aspect of this conflict do you think escapes some Americans? Well, I think most Americans are clueless when it comes to realizing that at its core, this is a religious conflict. Hamas represents Islamic fundamentalism. Uh, It says no land conquered for Allah can ever be given away or bargained away. To them, a Jewish state of Israel cannot exist in the Middle East because that land was all taken and consecrated to Allah. Uh, Their very charter says their struggle against Israel is uh, great and serious, and their goal is to create an Islamic state in Palestine which they say will stretch from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean. You know, it takes two to make peace, and Hamas will never be a partner for peace. Well, how can listeners right now pray for peace? How can we pray for the situation in general? I think we can pray for the leadership of Israel. Help them uh, to make wise and right decisions. That's what we need to be asking God. Pray for the safety of those in the Israeli Defense Force who are putting their lives on the line to protect citizens. Pray for the civilians who are caught in the conflict on both sides, Jewish and Arab. And I'd personally add, pray for the defeat of Hamas. You know, we prayed for the defeat of the Nazis in World War II, for the defeat of Al-Qaeda and ISIS. And I think we need to ask God to vanquish this group. So uh, there's lots to pray for. And uh, prayer is the most effective thing we can do right now for Israel at this moment. Dr. Charlie Dyer with a look at everything you need to know about the Hamas attack on Israel. We've got more for you in this special edition of The Land and the Book. We're heading over to Israel for a conversation with somebody on the ground making observations. That's all ahead next, right here on The Land and the Book. You've watched the video clips of the Hamas attack. You've seen the flash of bombs and the curl of smoke. But what's it like to actually be there and live through this offensive? Coming up, a conversation with a ministry leader in Israel. Welcome to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and on this third segment of the broadcast, we typically address Bible questions that you have wrestled with. But today we thought we would set all that aside in favor of questions you're probably asking about the Hamas attack on Israel, which takes me to this thought, not totally unrelated. Many of us wonder what the future holds for Israel. While some things are uncertain, the Bible gives us an outline of what will happen in the last days. And our friends at Life in Messiah recently hosted a prophecy conference focused specifically on this topic, Israel and the church living in the last days. And they're now making the videos of the conference available for early access exclusively to Land and the Book listeners. You'll hear from many knowledgeable speakers on this topic, including Moody Radio host Michael Rydelnik and our own Dr. Charlie Dyer. These encouraging and informative videos will help you better understand God's future plans and how we can be actively waiting. To get access to the video series, visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button to sign up. That's lifeinmessiah.org. Today on The Land and the Book, we have the privilege of taking you to Israel by a phone conversation with our guest, He is Dr. Erez Soref, president of One for Israel. 
a cutting-edge ministry impacting not just the Jewish world, but the Arab world as well. Dr. Soraf, I remember sitting down together at our hotel in Israel and doing some interviews with you back in May, but wow, who could have known then what you all have been going through this week? Thank you for joining us on The Land and the Book. Shalom, John. It's great to be with you. And indeed, I mean, no one could have imagined in, in the worst, at least us. I mean, in Israel, we could not have imagined in our worst nightmares. When and how were you first made aware of the Hamas attacks? It's a Saturday morning, 6.30. You know, Saturday is the day that uh, we worship in our church here. And um, I was a speaker that day. And so I, you know, planned to get up early. And I only got up at like 6.30. And I'm hearing those strange bangs that I cannot make out. And I was like, what is happening? Is somebody dropping heavy stuff on my roof? So I get up and I look at the news. And we live on the Judean hills outside of Jerusalem. And we have all the lowlands of Israel, all the way to Ashkelon and Ashdod. Uh, we can see it from our yard. And I'm seeing those, you know, smoke mushrooms. And, and I'm hearing the bombs drop. And I cannot believe my eyes. So just uh, absolutely shocking. You know, uh, pretty quickly in the hours after that, a lot of our staff later on, including one of my sons, are drafted to reserves. And, you know, the news start to pour in. This last Saturday, important to say, was not only a Sabbath, but it was also the last day of the holy day of Sukkot. That's what we read about in uh, the book of John, chapter 7, the great day of the feast, uh, that Jesus was in the temple. So that was that day, that Saturday. So the attack was very specific, very, um, of course, also on the anniversary of the 50th year, according to the Gregorian calendar for the Yom Kippur, or Day of Atonement War of 73. So a total shock. And I will tell you that the state of Israel and Israelis were caught completely off guard. I think there are still many, many, many questions of how that could have happened with all the super sophisticated defenses and manpower we had there. But it did happen. And I guess the questions will be answered later. I think Israelis are moving slowly from a state of shock to a state of great rage as more and more of the atrocities come to light. Literally, since the Holocaust, there was not a time where so many Jewish people were simply slaughtered for the sheer fact that they're Jewish. I mean, nothing else. Uh, we've also gotten the sad news that there were two soldiers that are uh, Jewish followers of Christ, a young man and a young woman. So the country is definitely uh, grieving. And uh, as you can already see on the news, the scale is, has started to tip back uh, where Israel is on the offense. And um, it really is amazing to see how everyone in Israel just comes together to basically support the families that lost their dear ones, the families that their children, elderly grandchildren were kidnapped. You know, out of 130 people that were kidnapped to the Gaza Strip and are held as hostages, there are many children, women, elderly people in their wheelchair, along with their domestic helper. So they're all kidnapped uh, without medication, without proper care, you know, held in very difficult conditions, and also a few soldiers among those that were kidnapped, and there's no sign of life, so their families here are absolutely 
I mean, very, very, very concerned, as you can imagine. So just a very tough situation for us here. I, uh, there are a couple of things that are encouraging. I think, one, I, I cannot tell you, John, how many emails, phone calls, text messages I got from many, many friends that say, how can we pray for you? How can we help? And, um, you know, I think like many, many others in the country, we at One for Israel kind of stopped our regular uh, ministry. And, and although in normal times, humanitarian aid is a fairly small part of what we do, we're all hands on deck just helping the people in need to help the people in the South evacuate, providing housing for them and just their general needs. Among them, believers as well. I mean, uh, we have actually uh, people from a congregation down in the south that have been evacuated to uh, near Jerusalem to where we live, to the little village we live in. So I just visited with the pastor there today. I mean, I know him from before. I sit with him and his wife. Their children are there. His mom, 87-year-old mom, is there. And we said, well, what do you need? Come over to our house and just, you know, hang out, have a meal, just sit together. We'll pray together. We'll just encourage each other. So all those things are happening, and I think um, it's a time where generally the state of Israel comes together to encourage and to provide a much, much needed unity. You know, the last several months have been very difficult in the country. This is The Land in the Book. I'm John Geiger. Normally it's Bible question and answers this segment. Today we're asking questions of Dr. Erez Soraf about the Hamas attack in Israel. You know, when we look at a map showing where the attacks took place, I'm staggered first by the number of places affected, but also the huge geographic area affected. Help our listeners understand this important distinctive. Yeah, so um, it's kind of hard to believe, but um, the Gaza Strip that is probably, I want to say, less than 10 miles long, if I'm not mistaken, so the Hamas units came out from multiple spots along this strip and entered Israel on you know, jeeps and tractors and by foot uh, through tunnels and whatever. And uh, I just heard today on the news that the current estimate is that as many as 1,500 terrorists all came at a single time, which, again, is absolutely unprecedented. And they basically raided uh, villages, and people are, like I said, early in the morning. They're on holiday. They're on Sabbath. And, um, yeah, so that's, that's kind of the situation. Just to help our listeners understand, I was talking to some friends in uh, Texas the other day. So to illustrate that, you know, from where we live in the outskirts of Jerusalem to the Gaza Strip, it's no more than an hour drive. So try to imagine that from downtown Dallas, you shoot missiles and you send terrorists to downtown Fort Worth. I mean, these are the distances. So very, very small distances. And uh, I think that's part of the big surprise of this murderous attack. What's the most heart-wrenching story that you have encountered related to the attack? I mean, what really shocked me, because um, my mom at this time is um, in an um, advanced care facility uh, for the elderly, and so apparently the terrorists have raided several of those kind of places. They've killed most. I mean, they just, you know, they see elderly, they just kill them in their beds or in their wheelchair. And as I mentioned before, some of them, they took hostage. And then, you know, story, another heart-wrenching story was that a man with his grand, young grandchildren are in the safe room, and the terrorists broke into the house, and he's basically struggling with them to hold the handle 
he can't lock it from inside. So he's holding the handle and then trying to push the handle. And, you know, he's telling their grandchildren, he says, get in the closet and close the closet. Don't look. And uh, basically struggled. He, he was able to hold on and help came from the outside. So they weren't able to break in. But you hear a lot of those stories. So just really, really, really and truly shocking. I want you to know our listeners are praying for you, praying with you. And uh, we really appreciate these perspectives today. It's heart-wrenching. It isn't over. But uh, we know that our God will prevail. And we want to thank you for these important updates. Absolutely. Thank you, John. And please also pray for the people of Israel at this difficult time to come to know the Messiah. As people are seeking for answers, as you know, we are convinced that Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah, He is the answer. He is the peace that we are all longing for, searching for. So pray for our country and, and also for the Gaza Strip. They need our prayers as well. Dr. Erez Sorif, President of One for Israel, joining us today on The Land and the Book. Charlie's devotional is next, right here. you like hiking? A lot of people do. It's a great day for one here at The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager. You say, why would you say that? Well, Charlie Dyer, your devotional is a hike. Where are we going? Uh, we're heading to the top of Mount Arbel, John. All right. Going to look forward to that. And first, though, we're going to pause to listen to this testimony from somebody who's traveled to Israel and wanted to share this with you and me. Yeah, I was just going to tell you a little bit about my story of going to Israel. I it was a life-changing experience for me. I actually went to a Bible college for two years prior to going on that trip. And the 10 days that I was in Israel was actually more educational than two years of Bible school. Now, don't get me wrong, my Bible school was great. It was educational, but being there, walking the sites, you know, seeing it for yourself, and, and just being able to put the picture for the Word was absolutely life-changing. It, it really was. Uh, when I minister, I, I constantly tell about the things that I've seen and learned while I was over there, and, and it's really added to not only my ministry, but to my life. So I would definitely recommend, I can't even begin to tell you about the testimony of how I thought I couldn't go, couldn't afford to, and, and couldn't make it happen, and God opened doors. So all you have to do is pray, believe, and then let God do what He does. If you're a regular listener to The Land of the Book, you know that Charlie's in the middle of a four-part series called AHA, places that he's been to that really stuck with him. Where are we going today, Charlie? Uh, John, we're heading back up to the top of Mount Arbel, but we're going to look at something different today. As you said, this week I am continuing that four-part series of these AHA places that really made an impact on me during my early trips to Israel. I love going back to these places, both for their continuing impact on my understanding of the Bible and to help other pilgrims to the Holy Land experience that same, oh, wow, I get it moment that I had so many years ago. And today's journey takes us to Mount Arbel, overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Now, I have to admit, I have mixed feelings as we turn onto the road that leads back to the agricultural settlement near the base of the slope leading to the summit. Back in the early days, we would drive through the community and park on the far side to walk up. Now, by my reckoning, the hike was just under a mile, though it was uphill the whole way and there was no road to the top, just a dirt path. No restrooms, no kiosk where you could buy a cold drink or ice cream. In fact, there was nothing on top except the view. And the view wasn't visible until you reached the very top. But wow, what a view. Today, there's a road that leads almost all the way to the top. 
Oh, you still need to hike the last quarter mile, but you can stop to use the restrooms before pressing on. And on the way back, you can buy that ice cream bar as your reward. And unfortunately, that oh wow moment is diminished just a little by the road that takes the bus along the edge of the cliff as it heads to the parking lot near the top. But it's still a magnificent sight. And since the bus has done most of the work, follow me as we hike the remaining quarter mile to the top. See what I mean about this being an aha sight? You can see most of the Sea of Galilee stretched out below. The top of Mount Arbel is about 600 feet above sea level, which doesn't sound that high. Until you remember the Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level. So we're standing on a cliff that towers 1,300 feet above the Sea of Galilee. And from up here, it definitely looks like a small lake. That throws many for a loop because when they read about the Sea of Galilee, they imagine an immense body of water when in reality, it's a small freshwater lake rather than a large salty sea. But let's get back to Mount Arbel. Don't get too close to the edge of the cliff. There are times when the wind can get quite gusty up here, especially in the afternoon when it blows inland from the Mediterranean. Numerous hats have blown over the edge over the years. Thankfully, we've not had any of their owners follow them over the side, but you still want to be careful. Mount Arbel turns the Sea of Galilee into an interactive map. Below us is Magdala, the home of Mary Magdalene. And then we can walk our way around the lake clockwise, taking in the biblical relevant sites of Tavga, where Jesus likely called his first disciples, to the Mount of Beatitudes, to Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida. It's amazing how much of Jesus' ministry was concentrated on a small triangle of land along the northern edge of the lake. Now, I've already shared much of that in the past, so today I want to focus on the other aha moment I had when I first visited this site. I try to visit Arbel in the afternoon because there's often a fair amount of haze in the morning, and there are times in the winter when low-hanging clouds can obscure the entire lake. But several times, including my very first trip, the weather was spectacularly clear. So clear that we could see from the top up here all the way to the summit of Mount Hermon, 45 miles away. Mount Hermon is on the northern border of Israel, and at over 9,200 feet, it's also the highest mountain in Israel. I had no idea I could see all the way to Mount Hermon from the Sea of Galilee. And that's when I discovered my second aha moment. On that first trip, we spent a great deal of time focusing on the physical and historical settings of the Bible. We spent hours tracing biblical movements and battles on maps before going. And then we opened those maps at key sites to transfer what we saw on paper to what we could actually see with our own eyes. And one of the maps focused on Joshua's military campaign in northern Canaan in Joshua 11. The largest force Joshua ever faced was an alliance of city kings assembled by Jabin, king of Hatzor. Hatzor was located about 12 miles north of where we're now standing, and it was the largest city in Canaan during the time of Joshua. The passage emphasizes the importance of Hatzor by describing the alliance of kings he was able to pull together although these details are usually lost on most readers. Now here's how it's described in Joshua 11, verses 1 to 4. When Jabin, king of Hatzor, heard of this, he sent word to Jobab, king of Madon, to the kings of Shimron and Aksaph, and to the northern kings who were in the mountains, in the Arabah south of Kinneret, in the western foothills, and in the heights of Dor, on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and west, to the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, and Jebusites in the hill country, and to the Hivites below Hermon in the region of Mitzpah, 
they came out with all their troops and with a large number of horses and chariots, a large army as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Now, let's face it. Most people just skip over all those names and places because they're hard to pronounce and difficult to locate on a map. But now look at the real-life map in front of you. Hatsor is 12 miles from here, but its king had influence over rulers who lived all the way north to Mount Hermon, and his control extended south to the Arabah south of Kinneret. Kinneret's the Hebrew name for the Sea of Galilee, and the Arabah is the Jordan Valley south of here. From Mount Hermon in the north all the way to the Jordan Valley below the Sea of Galilee. In those days, that was a large area of influence and control. His control also extended to the heights of Dor on the west. Dor was near the southwest slopes of Mount Carmel, just to the north of the New Testament city of Caesarea. Joshua was about to face the largest army ever assembled against him. And from this vantage point, we're able to glimpse the vastness of the region from which the different city-states and ethnic groups were summoned. Perhaps this is why God said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, because by this time tomorrow I will hand all of them over to Israel. Joshua obeyed, and the Lord gave him the victory. Israel attacked by the waters of Merom in Upper Galilee and pursued the fleeing soldiers west toward Sidon and northeast to the southern slopes of Mount Hermon. It was a stunning victory for Joshua's forces. Well, as we get ready to head back down to the bus... What truth can we carry back with us to help us today in our walk with Christ? Well, first, look one more time at the view from here, all the way up to Mount Hermon. For a nation still fresh off the desert, this represented a stunning challenge. If facing Jericho and then the alliance of five kings in the south seemed frightening, then this northern alliance must have seemed even more so. This was the ultimate threat faced by Joshua and his forces. And yet God's command for Joshua was, Do not be afraid. I will hand all of them over. So what's causing you to wake up in the middle of the night? What's giving you anxious thoughts? What's the overwhelming problem you're facing today that's robbing you of peace and joy? Now imagine trying to conquer all the land you've just seen from the top of Mount Arbel, facing an army as large and numerous as the sand on the seashore. God's message to Joshua is the same message he has for you. Do not be afraid. I will take care of that problem. Remember, small God, big problems. Big God, small problems. Just remember to keep your God and your problems in their proper perspective. Wow, great reminder. Thank you, Charlie. You can hear today's program again. Maybe you want to listen to that devotional again online at thelandandthebook.org. Time has gone too quickly. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you to you for listening. Thank you to the management at this station for graciously providing airtime. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute. I'm John Geiger. Have a great day.